hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I'm here today with a first time, not a first time podcaster, because we've had this conversation already, but a first time hamster podcaster, Mr. Jack Coyer. Say hello. Hello, Jack. How are you? Oh, I'm living the dream. I'm about to talk about Doctor Who and William Hartnell at that. I know, one of the best, one of the best, one of the most uh, underrated doctors, in my opinion. And, uh, Definitely underrated. One of the most underrated stories from Well, it will come as no surprise to you if you've listened to one of these that I have a question for you before we yeah. begin. And that is, how did you come to Doctor Who? So, uh, I'm quite young, I think, for a lot of the general average age of the Doctor Who sort of online community. I'm 26, so uh, 2005, I was nine years old. I remember um, uh, an interview Christopher Eccleston did with the BBC, that one where he sort of sat in front of the poster of Doctor Who, and he said something in that interview about, um, you know, I'm probably not going to appeal much to Pertwee and Baker fans, but I'm really aiming for that audience of 8 to 12-year-olds. And I think, you know, as a nine-year-old boy, didn't have a lot of friends, was a bit different. I sort of, I latched on. It was almost like it was made for me. It's almost like Russell T. Davis was pointing at me and going, make something that he's going to like. And, you know, it came along and I... Loved it, and, and I've got into other years of the show, which has sort of brought us here. So, obviously, if you came in on New Who, then how have you experienced Classic Who? One of my best friends, uh, called Will, who I do a lot of podcasting with, is a typical, like, when, when you walk into his house, one of the first things you see is a giant double bookcase with every Doctor Who story, like, <laughs> in order, like including CDs from Big Finish. And uh, I used to remember it going around to his house because he had it ever since we were kids. And he had little uh, action figures of each of the doctors mm. in front of all their stories. So he has a little Hartman in front of Ram Alfie Child, a little uh, Troutman in front of Power of the Daleks, so on and so forth. And I just used to remember sort of looking up at all his shelves and thinking, wow, you know, I watch so much Doctor Who, but there's so much more that I've never even experienced. And so we just started going through it all in order, which meant a lot of the Doctor Who that I got experience to was the Hartnell stuff, which is, right. at first, why it's one of my favourites. And uh, whereabouts are you now, then? Uh, oh, gosh. At the minute of our recordings, we're in the middle of Pertwee, maybe oh. season nine or ten. Oh, fabulous. I've seen, seen smatterings of some of the others. Um, I remember 2013, just before the Day of the Doctor, they had, I think on BBC Four, they played one story from each classic Doctor. So they were all sort of the length of a four-parter. So it was the Aztecs, Two Moon Cybermen, the... What was the, oh, Spearhead, Pyramids of Mars, Earthshock, Vengeance of Veros, Battlefield for some strange reason, <laughs> okay. and, and the TV movie. And so I sort of watched all of them, enjoyed them all to sort of varying degrees. 
and um, decided that, yeah, I, I was determined to sort of plough into as much doctor as I could. What an eclectic bunch of stories, honestly. <laughs> I know, and some of them are like, because two more side of them, you go, right, it's 2013, half of the Hartnells are, are in a thermos somewhere, so you may have two more side them seems like an obvious one. And they're four parties, but you kind of look at them and go, you know, I liked Pyramids of Mars, but I kind of came to the end of it and thought, seven years of Tom Baker, I hope that's not the best four-parter, which I, I don't know how many people would say it is, but, you know, and Battlefield, again, was just a, a strange choice. I guess because it has the Brigadier and Unit in it, so people maybe thought that that would be much familiar. They might have chosen Tom and the Rani, though, you know. You may never have come that, back. You know, you think that quality dragonfly or some old nonsense. But, um, <laughs> well, it, talking of uh, some old nonsense. Oh, no. Talking uh, of some old nonsense, our choice today. Yes. So me and you currently find ourselves on the edge of destruction, both literally and figuratively. I'm going to be honest with you, Jack. That's not a story that people have been clamouring to do. So that's an no, interesting and, choice. And that's why I picked it. You know, Doctor Who, it's a funny old show, and we all love it. Uh, well, everyone who's listening to this presumably loves it. Mm. And the thing I love about Doctor Who, both as fans and the character of the Doctor themselves, is championing the unchampioned oh. and defending the indefensible. Do you know, I know and somebody I think, you get on very well with, Fraser Gregory. That's what he, he dominated well, you know, the museum, honestly. I'm not going to go as far as the dominators. But, you know, <laughs> I'll go to the edge of destruction. Um, but, you know, I think, and on this podcast, I'm sure you get a lot of different requests for a lot of different stories. Mm. And I'm sure everyone's queuing around the block to do Genesis of the Daleks or Blink or, you know, Earthshock or whatever. And yes, those stories are all good. And any Doctor Who fan who's been there for five seconds can sort of reel off a hundred facts about them. But I thought, you know, why don't I, for my first go, pick something that I like, but maybe not a lot of other people do, and sort of share my perspective on it and open up people's minds to it. Well, that sounds delightful. And I, know, I think sometimes it's more interesting to look at, like, forgotten gems as well, you know. Or stories well, that frowned upon. It's so interesting to sort of look at this and go, you know, as we're probably about to do, say eight times, you know, why did Richard Martin choose to do that? <laughs> it's a much more interesting endeavour than kind of stroking your chin and going, oh, this Genesis of the Daleks is quite good, isn't it? Mm. Which, you know, it is, but I want to, I want to try and say something innovative. Do you know what? Well, I'm sure you will. But no, nobody at all. Now, the other story is, yeah, you're right. Nobody at all has asked to do Genesis of the Daleks. And in fact, I offered it to somebody who contributes regularly. And they went, oh, no, I can't do that one. That, that's too big. Well, it, it's like, the Mount Everest, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the hilltop, which we all aim to sort of reach to. And... Um, Again, is that trying to say something new, trying to say something nice, which, you know, people are, it can be difficult to do because you don't want to touch people's 
sacred cows, you know, and Egypt of Satsuma, I think, is this story that is very dependent on its context, very dependent on its placement within season one, and uh, has a lot of fascinating production choices and is, um, it, it impacts the whole of the rest of the show because um, I, one of the things that is commonly said about Doctor Who is, oh, Doctor Who, well, it's two things. Doctor Who is the show that can do anything. Mm -hmm. And Doctor Who often works its best creatively when they've run out of budget. And I think, in my opinion, The Edge of Destruction is the true story that proves Doctor Who can do anything. Mm. Because, you know, if you look at what's come before it, you've got cavemen historical stuff and you've got Flash Gordon sort of adventure pulp series, you know, your, your socks and your guns, as it were. Um, but this is just something that you kind of look at and go, how, why, what? <laughs> and, but I leave it with a smile on my face and going, that was an incredibly quick. 48 minutes. If Mary Whitehouse was doing the rounds at this point, she'd have had a she conniption fit if she'd have been Susan with those scissors. I'll tell you. She had a seizure or something, probably. <laughs> well, uh, okay. Oh, I'm salivating to get into this now after that preamble. Yeah. Um, would you care to count us in? Are you ready? Is the question. Okay. I shall uh, count us in in five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. You have listened to this before. Okay. One of my favourite versions of the thing, yeah. Uh, do you like these credits? I do. This is, of course, where you've got your uh, Bokoho. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. Bloody hell, you uh, have paying attention. Exactly. And another one of the reasons I chose to do this is, as far as I'm aware, you've not written on your blog about the edge of destruction. Or not that I've seen. I haven't. No, I haven't. Well, I'm I mean, actually, your oh, you're asking me questions. Alice. This is fascinating. Um, that's that's because it's one of about ten stories I haven't covered, and there's no reason for it. I just didn't get around to them, but I will. I will. Oh my word! Okay, so everybody is unconscious. Everybody's acting differently. They've all got very different notes from uh, Richard Richard Martin. Why are they acting differently? Oh, well, they've, they've been affected by the uh, false return switch. They've all been returned to theatre school. And so okay. They, uh, <laughs> yeah. All acting in very different ways. <laughs> it's the Amdram switch. Yes. Okay. False return to Rada. Because, like, Barbara's, like, a, she's a bit screamy, isn't she, and a bit nervous. Yes, it's not... I mean, I love Barbara, but this has some very high and low moments for Barbara in this story. It's one very high moment that I sent to you on Twitter. Yes, absolutely. Two absolutely cracking uh, exclamations. You see that light there on the... Yeah. The well, what is that? Where is that coming from in the universe? I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> Who knows? But I'll tell you what, because this is supposed to be like a psychological drama, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I like that light because it's very asylum-esque, isn't it? <laughs> yes. What is going now, on in Caroline the... Ford? Oh, she's 
quite good in this, I think. So it's one of her best, I think. And, you know, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of Caroline Ford or of Susan, but at least they're doing something interesting here, aren't they? Yeah, you know, interesting is an, is a layered word. And I think it, is. <laughs> it um, sure is. Now, this comes directly on the heels of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. And Caroline Ford is wearing some quite sharp high heels. So I want to know, how on earth did she go running through the jungles of Scarlet in these high heels? With difficulty. kill the ankles. That's right, she was crushing all those flowers along the way. I mean, no wonder her ankle hurts in the Dalek invasion of Earth. She's doing them damage. It's... Uh... Now, in the Dalek novelisation, yeah. this father is sort of hallucinating that they're back in Coal Hill School. But obviously they probably couldn't imagine that on this budget. Doesn't the novel feature them, like, going right down into the heart of the TARDIS and it's all kind of baroque mm. and... Yeah, it becomes like a horror film, and they're like yeah. thinking it might be a poltergeist. Do you think the target novel should should represent what was on the screen, or do you think it's it's better for them to just sort of go off? It should expand because you know it's got no budget to play with. Mm. It doesn't need to do any CGI or anything. You're up to the author's imagination. Who is it? Nigel Robinson that does the novelization. Yes, it could be. I think it's James Wright's and the Underwater Menace, maybe. Oh, yeah. So oh, we only um... tackle the best stories. Yeah, of course. Only the, only the best. <laughs> oh, we've got the duds. Let's give them to Nigel Robinson. Yeah. <laughs> so Nigel, a... another one for you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Terence is like, I don't want to do this one. Sorry. No, I've run out of things. Look at Barbara's trousers there. Look with the holes in it. Yeah, they look like those young people trousers with the holes kind of. So here we are in the fabulous room where the beds come out of the walls, aren't, aren't we? Yes, uh, Raymond's Q uh classic design. Do you know what though, right? Let's but, be honest, what they did with very little money is extraordinary. Yeah. Particularly this. I mean, this might be the lowest budget Doctor Who story ever. It's got to be up there. Yeah. Well, um, because in season one, I swear I read that they annotized the cost of the TARDIS set across the season. So they took a bit of the budget of every story, which means yeah. every other story was paying for this story to exist because the set was already well, there. You know, it just didn't exist. You know, something like Marco Polo would sort of shine even more than it. It does, you know, would be... And the, the, the contrast as well. Think of the contrast between Marco Polo, the epic, loads yeah, of sets and ex- extravagance, and then this, which is tight and claustrophobic and psychological. Yeah. yeah. Richard Martin's probably looking at what he's saying, like, are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> Why has he got that one? <laughs> Just because he did that little job, you're going to throw the budget in the world, man. Now, you're going to have to tell me, because I don't know. Is this got two directors? Yes, Richard Martin and Frank Cox. And Frank Cox also did... did another one? I think he did The the Censorites, I think. Oh, well, again. (laughs) Another classic. (laughs) On the DVD uh, special features... Um, Richard Martin says, oh, I, I don't know why they replaced me for the second one. I don't really understand. <laughs> um, 
But we might be about to see why in some of these uh, shots, maybe. This fabulous bandage that that uh, slowly absorbs into the brain or something, and there's so much blood. He's leaking so much blood <laughs> out of his head if you look at that bandage. And the TARDIS door. Yeah, it really reminds me of the mind robber, that, that sort of white void outside. Maybe the in the land of there's a fair few comparisons you can make with these two episodes and that first episode of The Mind Robber, isn't there, in terms of uh, tone and weirdness. Yes, tone. Maybe not, you know, filming qualities. Yeah, no, <laughs> quality. <laughs> Although, look, it does look like there's that cyclorama outside the door there, doesn't it? That was in the mind. Yeah. <laughs> Poor old Sam, no. honestly. She did spend a lot of time wailing, didn't she? Yeah, although she was sort of retching and arching her back, this can't have been uh, easy for her. But I love I love this dialogue in the sixties. Do you really just said there? She's fainted. No, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah, yeah. I think she yeah, fainted him. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's why he's a science teacher. He's in. He's uh, he knows the anatomy. But, okay, I've got a question for you then. Do you think this was an essential story in terms of character development of this sort of family unit? Because you had Unearthly Child, where they're kind of unwilling adventurers. Then you have mm -hmm. the Daleks, where there is a lot of contention and, you know, it gets quite tough between them at times and they're arguing a lot. Then there's this, where, you know, it reaches crisis point. And then they find a way to communicate and solve this problem. And then after that, they almost like play good, don't they? It's almost quite nice. Absolutely. I think this is completely vital for these four characters, particularly these two, uh, the Doctor and Barbara, to foment relationships. Otherwise, they would have all killed each other. And the show would have probably been over. Just would have been the TARDIS on autopilot with four corpses on the floor. Um, I mean, the Doctor could be such a prick in those first couple of stories. I'm surprised he made it out of a couple of them. Yes, particularly in this one. I mean, I mean the novelisation as well. This Nigel uh, Robertson sort of ratches that up to 11. Really? Like, this first Doctor is the most arrogant, pompous uh, form, and, uh, which is, I'm sure, what Ian and Barb will probably think. Oh, it's the food machine. Yes, water and milk. <laughs> um, Jack, I'll have a forty-five, please. <laughs> beep, beep, beep. I'll have uh, two waters and a milk. Uh, <laughs> two waters and a milk. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no booze on the TARDIS, unfortunately. It's a diet version of a white Russian, just water and milk. <laughs> oh, oh God, here we go! Look at this! Oh my word! She looks feral. I mean, she probably was. That is terrifying. I mean, that is a that is a bit much, isn't it? Yeah, I remember her hair sort of like frizzed to show how crazy she is. Is it irresponsible for children to be watching somebody attacking somebody else with a pair of scissors? I'm going full on Mary Whitehouse. Well, you know, to be fair, it is Susan, so she's sort of quite unreliable with them. And that doesn't really do it properly. Wow. That's I mean, she attacked the chair, so, you know. You know when people say, like, someone goes for it as an actor? Well, I think she just mm. embodied that entirely then, didn't she? 
Oh yeah, I mean they're all going for something. They just sort of going. The four of them are going for different things from each other, which is sort of quite interesting. Do you know what though? I think as soon as Hartnell, like he's kind of woken up here now. As soon as Hartnell joins the action, it just it app lifts immediately. He's the necessary. Um, he's the sort of uh, chink in the armor. You know, he's like the tenth Doctor in Midnight. You, you kind of need him to show the discord, uh, which. Gets the story kicking. I love it later on when he comes in with the drinks. It's so obvious he's going to poison a lot of, or you know, send them to sleep. Yes, that's it. You say the attacking with the knife is a bit much. I think threatening to to drug your friends is like quite a quite a bold move. But at this point, like he's not the Doctor as we know him, is he? He is a complete enigma and possibly a mm. bit of an anti-hero. Yeah, I mean, anti-hero, you know, at times he's almost villainous, openly villainous in this story. Um, I like it, though. Do you know what, Jack? I like it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you need a doctor who's a bit... who, who is a bit dangerous. And, you know, he does kidnap him and Barbara in an unearthly child, so... Well, OK, so I'm going to very quickly ask you about two other cantankerous and slightly asshole doctors... Colin Baker's mm. sixth doctor and Peter Capaldi's twelfth yep. doctor. Are you quite keen on them two as well? Yeah, I mean, again, the, the cantankerousness is uh, becomes so sort of cuddly gentleness, really. Yeah. Um, I think Capaldi maybe sells the gentleness a bit less than like Colin Baker. So if you think of like six and Evelyn, it's oh, sort of like now you're talking myths of that character. Um, 12 and Bill kind of get to it, but then like Nardo kind of gets in the way and almost like pushes the 12th Doctor back to a sort of series eight mode a little bit. Mm. Um, but oh, I love this uh, of Susan's sort of scurrying. There's a shot coming up where Susan's just sort of scurries in the background. Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, here just walks on there. I walks with the dagger in the background, which I think is a great shot. Like you know, Richard gasp. Martin gets a bit of flack, but I do quite like that. I, I really like the lighting in this. You know, I don't think I've quite noticed before how striking the lighting is in this. Because I think this target yeah. later on is just lit in a very flat and uninteresting way. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it does it, they do their best. And it must be quite difficult to have a story with multiple directors. Because obviously nowadays that will be almost unheard of. But yeah. A new who story with a new director coming. Um, I, mean, I think if it ever happens after this, it's like a production problem, like like Inferno, where Barry Letts took over from Douglas Campbell. Yeah. Well, um, is it Warriors Gate? Oh, where yeah. Graham Parker comes in? Yeah. That was a firing, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that was like a surreptitious like. A firing and then uh, yeah, come back. Didn't they say too after? Oh no, no, actually, we can't do this. Come back, finish it off. (laughs) (laughs) Look at her; she looks ghoulish. Yeah, she was dead. I mean, she's they've thrown a bucket of water on her face. And what's really interesting here is obviously Ian and Barbara are still un- uh, wary of the Doctor and Susan and of the TARDIS. And it's become this very cold sort of environment in this story, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's reflective in a lot of the, you know, 
life in it and the set design it's all quite cold quite bare yeah just let's get these actors together and see, see what they've done she look she's waving those scissors about again exactly she looks threatening but which, which works because uh, it does you might look at her in some stories like the reign of terror oh my. if you watch that before this you would go how on earth is this screaming child supposed to be threatening but I think he sells it quite well. Do you remember in Unearthly Child, you know, in the first episode, where they really lean into the fact that she's alien and different? Yes, particularly the pirate. Obviously, double down. I don't know why they didn't just go with that. They could have really gone with that, you know? Yeah, they could have made Susan the villain. And sort of, as the Doctor gets nicer, Susan gets sort of more bent out of shape. But what I really like about this scene is, is it's incredibly well acted. It's the bit where Jacqueline Hill says, Susan, give me those scissors. She knows they're under there. That, that's yeah. like a scene out of a horror movie, that is. Yeah. Um, oh, look at her. She was beautiful, Jacqueline Hill. Yes, it's a shame that Richard Martin can't focus this shot on Beautiful. I thought I gave Richard Martin all time. Well, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love the chase. You know, despite oh, this. I think good man. Chase might be my favourite William Hartnell Dalek story. If I'm allowed to enter that, it's a controversial opinion. But I think <laughs> Frank Cox should step it up a bit in that sense. That means you, are, you and me are of one. I love the chase. Well, as well. that's good. <laughs> that's a good but I mean, I won't. I would never suggest that the chase is, you know, like a, a particularly skillfully executed piece of drama because it's so. Oh no, it's so entertaining that I can lock myself into the story, and that's it. And I'm I'm taken away to you know a haunted house or or, or a pirate ship. You know? So this is nice because Ian and Barbara think it's the Doctor and Susan. The Doctor and Susan yeah. think it's Ian and Barbara. And it's essentially the tension we've had between them in the first, but ramped up, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I love how they're sort of so scared to even touch the buttons on the TARDIS. Uh, so why didn't they do this? So clearly, like, we're going on a journey with these characters, aren't we? There's a development yeah. of character amongst all of them. Why did they kind of drop this thing? Because I think in later... Doctor Companion teams, they just join and they just have adventures, you know, and that's that. Well, it's that it's, it's what we want from Doctor Who is a bunch of characters who we all like, grow to like, going on adventures. And I think on this show before, you've obviously spoken about characters who are sort of locked in from day one versus yeah. characters who change and develop. That's why people like, you know, the 10th Doctor and Donna so much, because Donna oh. goes on that, that journey. Yeah, um, that's why it's so oh, heartbreaking at the end, isn't it? Where yeah, it's the planet uh, Quinnis, which uh, they then turned into a companion chronicle called Quinnis with my Platt. I was watching uh, an interview with Caroline Ford the other day where she cited that big Finnish story as one of her favorites. But I love the idea of getting Mark Platt who wrote, you know, Spare Parts and Ghostlight and being like, hey, um, there's this one line in the Edge of Destruction <laughs> yes. which we want to write a whole story out. 
Uh, Mark Platt's big finishes, though, I think are... he's He has a way of conjuring up images on audio that are weird, yeah. beautiful, and, and really, really interesting. Mm. So this is where the suspicion, I think, sort of starts really. <laughs> what is inside is what's important at the moment, madam. <laughs> I'm over there. It's always madam or miss right. Hartnell's vicious here, though, isn't he? You attacked us, you know. Yes, he's, uh, you said it's all about shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, uh, is this a bit where she goes, accuse us? You should get down on your hands yeah. and knees and thank us. Uh, I think you're about to. It's so good, this This is very, very well acted, this scene. I think this is where the concept comes from, is, is that, that need to have the two pairs of them going at each other. Yeah. Was this story, was this story supposed to exist like this, or was this like an act of desperation, we need two episodes? Uh, well, they have obviously, the, they commissioned, I think, 13, so they just needed the two. Um, damn them, you mean fucking us. Uh, oh, do you know what? Um, she was doing so well then. Angry, passionate, and then she sees that melted clock and just screams her head off. And I'm like, oh, Barbara, come on. Yeah, I know. It's, um, it's a shame, again, that they can't... If this were New Who, you'd have ten takes to get something like this right, mm. of showing the clock. And in the DVD special features, Richard Martin does say, I wish we could have given that clock a bit of animation to, like, show the clock falling like apart. Melting and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they do CGI extras on these DVDs. Yeah, when the Blu-ray box set comes out, that clock will be uh, turned into a little like Ray Harryhausen sort of I bloody love that Ray Harryhausen stop-start animation. You know, I think that's a mark. Well, commission them to uh, do that on the clock. Oh, here we go! Look, old smoothie with his drinks. Here we go! Yeah, this is uh, just drunk and then knock him out, and that'll be all right. <laughs> One week, he's exposing them all to radiation poisoning. The week before, he's going to knock out or murder a caveman with a rock. Now he's now he's yeah. fucking people. And of course, Reign of Terror, he knocks out one of those uh, labourers. Uh... Oh, I love that bit, though. When he uses a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> he's determined to kill someone in, in all of this. Story. What does that fella call him? The, the guy who's oh, oh probably some horrible French oh, word but... he's skinny that's it he calls him skinny skinny, that's... skinny. <laughs> oh dear okay I can't do you know what I have no recollection of what happens after they're knocked out uh, I don't think they're knocked out for too long I don't think in, in the Target novel obviously him and Barbara aren't knocked out for very long they can't really sleep and they sort of go wandering around the corridors. Does he give the, the explanation behind this a bit more kind of substance in the book? Um, yeah, I mean, some of the lines get switched around and stuff like that. I think they try and give the doctor a lot more of the explanations about what's going on. Uh -huh. um, 
obviously stuff like his famous speech about the creation of the solar system is really, I think, best left up to William Hartnell to sort of interpret. Oh, there he goes. I love that giggly he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to uh, kill them. Oh, look, his, um, his bandage is now... It's only got a couple of blobs left on it, but... Well, yeah, he's probably running out of blood. He probably wouldn't have that much left in his body. Oh, I thought, I thought the blobs were like medicine that absorbed into his head. Oh, right. I assumed they were blood and he was just profusely bleeding. Because when he put it on, it's covered in those blobs. And then yeah. as the story goes on, they, they start vanishing. <laughs> or it could just be a really no, terrible I... continuity advisor. I mean, God forbid something in Doctor Who not look like it. Where do you imagine they got these bits from, Ikea? I mean, they look so uncomfortable. Do they just all sleep next to each other? Have you reached the... Uh, you said you were doing mid Perwy. Have you reached Planet of the Daleks yet? I have not done Planet of the Daleks. Oh, you wait till you see it. Uh, fabulous Ikea furniture in that, tar in that console room, in that one. <laughs> Honestly. It's well, you know, you gotta do things on the cheap sometimes. Sometimes, and this well, show. all the time. This one in particular. Oh, here we go. Is that? Yeah, she's asleep. I mean, this would be quite unsavory for children as well. I think. Oh, it's a bit sinister, isn't it? He's going in there while she's yeah. sleeping. Oh, looking them with a stick. Like, right, that one's that one's down. On oh, to the next one. Because as well, like. This was a point where they really hadn't determined what was and wasn't was suitable because in um, Keys of Marinus, a woman is mm. slapped around the face. Exactly, and like, it's one of multiple times someone's trying to uh, sexually assault. Yeah, or... so, I, so yeah, I, yeah. I don't think that would pass in New Who now, would it? So much. No, I mean you know, it, or well, I mean it probably passed in like Torchwood. They should have the they should have William Hartnell land in a torture episode. Well, hang on a minute, that just stopped. What happened? Oh, uh, the doctor was about to be choked out by someone. We don't know who it might be. Oh, this might be Susan Manish hands. We don't know who. <laughs> it was clearly a bloke, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, do you know what? I actually flew by. Yes, I was watching this the other day in preparation, and I was like shocked at how quick. And episode two is even shorter; it's going to flow by even quicker. Yeah, it's literally started on Brickbox. It's literally twenty-two minutes episode two. Yes, but it's there's probably a lot... one of the shortest ever. But uh, you know, thank you, Richard Martin. Thank you for your efforts. <laughs> <And, yeah. laughs> but unfortunately, a little bit sharper. How do you imagine they approached him and said, look, I'm really sorry, but uh, we're bringing I him. mean, maybe they just didn't. Maybe he, just, what, he was just sat by the phone all week and just wondered <laughs> what. And then just turned to his wife and said, I didn't get the call from Dr. Who this way. Maybe. Maybe they just lost my number. Or they're just doing one episode and, you know, we'll, we'll watch it when it goes out and see. <laughs> yeah, he'll turn on the telly. Maybe you probably think, Maybe they only commissioned 12 episodes instead of 13. And it's probably just thinking it's been cancelled already. And then he watched episode two in horror. And he's like, right, 
who's directed this, I'm staying till the end to see who's done this. Yeah. He just wanders on the set of Marco Polo and you can see him <laughs> in the background stomping around. He's, no, on the sensor rights, because that's Frank Cox's other one. He's got a rapier in the background. He's like, Cox, I'm coming for you. <laughs> All the sensor rights look the same, except for that one that looks like Richard Martin. 